The Stark Law is a civil statute where intent is not an element, but it may come as a surprise that the parties need to intend to enter into a financial arrangement for a violation under the Stark Law to occur. How is this possible? Well, listen to this episode, and I will explain why. Captain Integrity Production and the law firm of Nelson Mullins presents Stark Integrity. The Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. Stark Integrity explores the world of the Stark Law and healthcare compliance with our nationally recognized Stark Law, Fraud, and Compliance Attorney, Bob Wade. Bob has a national healthcare legal and compliance practice that focuses on the minions of the Anti-Kickback Statute, False Claims Act, and the Stark Law including fair market value and commercial reasonableness. Although Bob is a law partner in the national law firm of Nelson Mullins, the views expressed in Stark Integrity are Bob's personal views and not the views of the firm, and they are not intended to be legal advice. Now, without further ado, I give you Captain Integrity, Bob Wade. Welcome to Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. My name is Bob Wade and I am your host. Today I am going to talk about intent. Now intent, typically when I speak about it, I'm talking about the anti-kickback statute. The anti-kickback statute is a criminal statute and since it is a criminal statute for the government to prove that there has been an infraction, the government has to prove that a party intended to induce referrals through a financial arrangement. Uh, that's what we lawyers call the appropriate center. So they need to prove intent. However, and I want to make this absolutely clear that I'm not trying to say that the Stark Law is a criminal statute. It is not. So I am not saying that someone needs to prove that a party intended to induce referrals through entering into an arrangement that implicates the Stark Law. The focus of this discussion is going to be on the intention to enter into a financial arrangement. So uh, some of you may be scratching your heads again with the, you know, the talking about intent and the Stark Law, and I want to make it clear that Bob has not went off the Stark Law range. But what, what you typically hear with respect to the Stark Law is once you ring the Stark Law bell, that you cannot unring the Stark Law bell. And I'm not quite there uh, with respect to that general statement. Uh, so I, I do believe that there is an intent element about the entering into a financial arrangement. So I'm going to put this into three general buckets for this discussion. Number one is the intention to enter into a financial arrangement generally. Uh, the bucket number two, as I'm talking about intent under the Stark Law, is as it relates to charitable contributions. And the third intent bucket under the Stark Law that I want to talk about is whether or not a party overpaid or underpaid pursuant to a compensation arrangement, whether that overpayment or underpayment was a mutual mistake or a unilateral mistake. So those are the three buckets that I want to talk about with respect to intent under the Stark Law. And also, before I proceed in discussing each of these separate buckets, I want to make sure that people understand that usually when you're talking about 
whether or not there was an intent to enter into a financial arrangement, you're usually in a defensive posture. Something has occurred with respect to a physician financial arrangement uh, with a DHS entity, and now you're trying to determine whether or not the Stark Law is implicated, and if it's implicated, uh, whether or not there is a violation for which a repayment may need to be made. So the first bucket I want to talk about is whether or not the parties intended to enter into a financial arrangement. And here I want to provide a few examples, and these are examples that I have encountered uh, either when I was in-house or also in my private practice with clients calling me. Mostly it's, it's in my private practice. So first, let's talk about just theft. And I'm going to put theft in air quotes. Uh, let's say that you have an anesthesiologist who steals drugs from a hospital. Hospital is a DHS entity. And that anesthesiologist stole drugs for their own personal purpose. Well, one could say that, since I've talked about this in other episodes, that remuneration is broadly defined under the Stark Law as any benefit. Was the theft of that drug a benefit to the anesthesiologist? Well, I think one would say, well, yeah, the anesthesiologist probably would say that by taking the drug, that drug was a benefit. Otherwise, the anesthesiologist would not have stolen the drugs. But just because a theft has occurred, I don't believe that the DHS entity in this context, the hospital, agreed to allow that anesthesiologist to steal those drugs from the hospital. Another context that I, I receive this question in is like in the emergency department of a hospital. Let's say that the hospital has emergency department bays where a physician can see patients in, and you have an independent physician, not emergency department physician. On a Saturday, a patient calls and needs to see that physician, and the physician's office is not open, so the physician says, well, just meet me in the emergency department, and I will evaluate you. Well, the, the patient shows up, the physician shows up, and the physician uses one of those ER bays. And the physician's not paying rent for the use of, the, of that ER bay. So one would say, well, that physician took that space. The hospital did not intend for that physician to have that patient encounter in that space. And they, by taking that space, was that a benefit to the referring physician? Well, yes, but I don't believe the Stark Law is implicated in that context. Or let's say that the physician uses a non-physician practitioner, like a physician assistant or nurse practitioner that happens to be employed by the hospital, and the physician uses the services of that PA or NP and that use of the PA or NP positively impacts what the physician bills for that encounter. Well, if the hospital didn't know that the physician was using their employee for the benefit of that physician's practice to influence that physician practice's billing, then there was no intention on behalf of the hospital for that physician to use that PA or NP. Another example would be a physician that happens to take supplies from a hospital uh, for, let's say the physician is going to be the uh, physician at a high school sporting event. So the physician goes into the hospital, takes a bunch of supplies, and thinking that this was a charitable 
arrangement and uses those supplies as that physician is the physician at that high school sporting event. Well, if the hospital did not agree to allow that physician to take those supplies, then that would be an inappropriate taking on behalf of the physician. I also get this question a lot of times in the context of leasing of space. So let's say that the physician is using, uh, pursuant to the rent, 1,000 square feet, but later on it's determined that that space is 1,200 square feet, not 1,000 square feet. Well, did the parties really intend for the physician to use 1,200? Well, that could have been a mutual mistake. Or another thing in relationship to the use of space is, let's say the lease agreement does not require the landlord, in this context, the hospital, to provide services for trash, cleaning, internet, cable, or the like, but the physician is using those services under their lease agreement. Well, at the beginning, the parties may not have intended that, that the physician would benefit from the trash, the cleaning, the internet, or the cable. And so therefore, there was no intention at the commencement of that arrangement for the financial arrangement to cover those services. And I've talked on a previous episode about timeshare creep, where at some cont- some point in an arrangement, the physician is using a timeshared suite and either expands the space or expands equipment or staff. If that was not intended at the very beginning, then that would, would be an unintentional taking of a benefit by a physician. Now, let me also be clear here is that once it's discovered that the physician is using those items or services that were not intended at the beginning, now we have a financial arrangement that we have to deal with. And that is when the DHS entity or the hospital has to confront the physician and ask the physician to pay for the space that the physician is using. So let's go back out to that emergency department usage. So that that physician uses the bay for one time. Administration finds out about it, then the hospital should tell the physician that the physician should not use that space anymore unless the physician pays for the use of that space on a per-use basis or a block time basis. Uh, And you have to carefully consider whether or not you need to go back and to recoup the money for the use of the space for the first time that the space was used. Uh, I know that there have been some disclosures to the government, like with respect to trash and cleaning services that may be provided free of charge that was not intended to be covered by the lease agreement. And once recognized, then the physician and the hospital need to agree upon a settlement of that amount pursuant to a Stark Law exception. And so you you could settle those, but it also takes the physician to recognize that there was an unintended taking of those items and services, and the physician would have to agree that the physician is going to pay fair market value for the items or services so taken. So if the physician is willing and does pay, then I believe that you can correct that Stark Law violation because there was no intent at the commencement of the taking uh, for the physician to actually benefit by the use of those items or services. So that's the first bucket. The second bucket I want to talk about is charitable contributions. Now, there is an exception under the Stark Law for a physician to make a charitable contribution to a tax-exempt entity like a hospital. 
as long as it's not solicited based upon the volume or value of that physician's services. Now, typically hospitals have a foundation. Foundations are separate legal entities, and the provider number of the hospital does not apply to that foundation. Now, the hospital could control that foundation, which would be another episode of stark integrity. Uh, but if it is a separate legal entity, arguably the stark law does not apply. You still have an anti-kickback statute analysis that you'd have to, to apply if the contribution is going directly to the foundation, a separate legal entity versus the hospital proper. Now, I have had one occasion where a client actually said that a, a organization, this happened not to be a physician, but an organization was making a contribution to the hospital's foundation, and it was tied directly to the number of items that the hospital was purchasing from this entity. And even it came down as the contribution into the foundation, there was a statement and it actually itemized the number of physician, I'm sorry, the number of patients that were applicable to the arrangement. And then the amount of the contribution to the charity varied based upon the number of patients involved. And so obviously that would be a problem under the anti-kickback statute. Then you also, under the charity, you if, if, let's say, a referring physician is going to be making a donation of assets to a hospital, uh, so let's say that it has a piece of equipment that it wants to donate to the hospital, then you really have to seriously consider the donation of that equipment if it's going to the foundation uh, or if, even if it's going to the hospital as to whether or not that is purely a contribution to the mission of the hospital. So physicians can donate that equipment to the hospital, uh, but you have to see whether or not the donation is really tied to an already existing service arrangement. So let's say that you have a professional service arrangement, we'll call it a call arrangement. So a comp compensated call arrangement between the hospital and this physician group, and they have a piece of equipment that they would like to donate. Now, then you'd have to really get behind the intention of that donation. Is that is the intention of the donation purely for the charitable mission of that hospital or somehow that donation tied to the services agreement between the parties. I call it like a but-for argument. You know, but-for having that service agreement, would that physician group otherwise have donated that equipment to the hospital? So under the charity exception under the Stark Law, you need to seriously consider whether or not the intention is for a purely a charitable contribution to the mission of the hospital, or are there ties to the otherwise a financial arrangement that currently exists between the physician group and the hospital. And if you can classify it purely as a charitable contribution, then it can fall within the charitable contribution exception. However, if there is some tie or connection with the personal service arrangement that the hospital has with those referring physicians, then one could argue that it's not uh, not a you know, arm's length charitable contribution, that there's somehow a tie to a previously existing financial arrangement and therefore would implicate another exception like the personal services arrangement exception or the fair market value exception. And then the third bucket under intent 
has to deal with an overpayment or underpayment of a physician group or a physician personally. Let's say that you have a medical directorship and that medical director was supposed to receive $10,000 per month for their medical directorship, but somehow in the finance department, a check was cut every month for a year at $11,000 per month. So you get to the end of the year, it was discovered, and now you have identified that the physician has been overpaid by $12,000, $1,000 per month times 12, so it's $12,000 per month. It was a mistake. The parties did not intend that the hospital would pay the physician group $11,000 per month. The contract clearly states $10,000. It was a mistake in the finance department when the check went out for $11,000. It is my personal view that that is a mistake that was made. If the physician recognizes that it is a mistake and cuts a check back to the hospital for the $12,000 of the mistaken overpayment, then I don't believe that you have a Stark Law infraction, meaning that you have not overpaid uh, based upon the amount that was set in advance in the personal service arrangement between the hospital and the physician group. So whether it's a mutual mistake or a unilateral mistake, you have to consider that under state law as to whether or not an overpayment or underpayment was made. And if the parties can recognize that an overpayment or an underpayment was made and the parties agree to rectify the mistake and compensate the parties appropriately, then I don't believe that you have a Stark Law violation because there was no intent to overpay, in the example that I gave, that physician group by $1,000 per month. So because the Stark Law is not a criminal statute, you're not going to see anywhere in the Stark Law where intent is a requirement under the Stark Law. So here's where I believe it is defensible and appropriate to infer that for a financial arrangement to exist, that the parties had to intend to enter into that financial arrangement. And if you find an inappropriate intent, like theft or an overpayment or underpayment by mistake, and the parties rectify that situation, that financial arrangement, then it's my belief that that arrangement is still stark compliant. So this brings us to the three Captain Integrity punch points for this episode of Stark Integrity. Captain Integrity punch point number one is the intent of both parties to enter into the financial arrangement needs to be made for the Stark Law to be implicated. So as I described, if this is a theft or a, an unapproved taking by a physician or physician group, then I don't believe that the parties intended to enter into a financial arrangement. And so uh, once discovered, and if the hospital allows the physician or physician group to continue to use, then that could possibly be the intent. So now you have the physician inappropriately taking and the hospital just agreeing to allow the physician to inappropriately take. If that evidence is there, then obviously there's intent on both sides. Captain Integrity punch point number two is once a benefit is that has been taken is discovered, then the parties must obtain payment 
of the value of the remuneration or benefit that has been taken. So let me use again that example about a lease agreement where the hospital's providing trash removal. It was not specified in the lease agreement. Once the parties recognize that that was not in the lease agreement, then it's possible for the parties to uh, rectify that situation uh, by entering into an agreement uh, to establish fair market value payment for those that trash services that's not related to the leasing of that space. Cabinet integrity punch point number three is mere overpayments does not equal a Stark Law violation. If the hospital makes a mistake and overpays a physician, it was a mistake, there was no intent, and assuming that the physician or physician group is willing to repay the overpayment, then I believe the parties can defend the financial arrangement. But it's really contingent upon the physician group understanding and agreeing that a mistake was made and rectifying the arrangement by repaying the hospital the amount of the overpayment. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. If you have any questions regarding this episode, the Stark Law, or healthcare compliance, you can contact me at bobwadecaptainintegrity at gmail.com or my law firm email address at bob.wade at nelsonmullins.com. You can review this and any other episode of Stark Integrity at the Captain Integrity website at captainintegrity.com. You can also follow me on LinkedIn under Bob Wade. I hope the three Captain Integrity punch points will help you with the Stark Law and compliance. In closing, remember that integrity depends on you and me.